Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tanevsky, and today I spoke with Annie Dufflow, the CEO of Innovations for Poverty Action. IPA is a global research organization whose mission is to create high-quality evidence for the best interventions to alleviate poverty, and then turn that evidence into the best policies for the poor around the world. IPA has conducted a wide variety of studies that include improving the education of children in Peru and reducing human trafficking in Africa. These are just a few of the hundreds of programs that IPA has implemented to reduce poverty since its founding in 2002. I hope you enjoy learning more about their work. Today, I'm speaking with Annie Dufflow, the CEO of Innovations for Poverty Action. Annie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So to start, could you talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to IPA? So I, I can't say that it's been like a completely straight road. Um, in college, I studied uh, philosophy and, and German language, <laughs> and I like to believe that philosophy made me wiser, but it didn't directly lead to, to what I'm doing now. But, but after studying philosophy, I uh, decided to, to study something that's a little bit more anchored into the, the real world. And I shifted to social sciences. And in, in that context, I also uh, volunteered for a, a non-profit in Paris at the time that was working with disadvantaged youth in, in Paris. And that, you know, gave me a strong interest in working in, in, in ensuring that my career choices have, can have a social impact. It also really uh, led to my interest in social policies, right, and understanding how social policies can make a difference in people's lives. Because at, at the time, this, this non-profit was founded you know, through a youth employment program, which allowed them to recruit disadvantaged youth. So. Anyway, I decided to not, um, you know, start a PhD immediately and um, went to work in India. Um, and I worked for um, a couple of, of non-profits, Seva Mandir and, and Pratham in India, two, two non-profits I really admire. And that, that time was really formative for me, and that, that's really when I decided to uh, to work in the international development sector because the, the needs you know, are greater. <laughs> so, uh, so then I decided to, uh, to, to go to grad school and acquire some skills that would <laughs> help me build a career in, in this space. So, so I went to the U.S., I went to the Harvard Kennedy School and did a master's in international development. And after that, I went back to India and led a research center on microfinance, which was in many ways, very similar to, to IPA, but focused on microfinance and focused on India. And that's where I met Dean. Um, I had met him before, actually, but so Dean Kalan is the founder of IPA, and um, uh, he was working with, with me when I was leading the Center for Microfinance in, in India. And that's what, you know, eventually <laughs> led me to, to IPA. So, so that's really the, the journey. So like I said, not not a direct path, but um, but I like to think that the values that I grew up with, you know, underlies the choices yeah. that I that I made. Um, my 
my dad is a mathematician and my mom is a pediatrician, a doctor, and but she's also uh, she was also like volunteering for a, a non-profit uh, that that works with uh, children victims of war. So she was managing their mm-hmm. El Salvador program. So I grew up, you know, seeing pictures um, of El Salvador and you know, being exposed to poverty-related issues, you know, in in this indirect manner. So, uh, so I think this, you know, the values I grew up with were a combination of you know the belief in science and rigor. And also the you know, desire to have a social impact and yeah. and help you know more disadvantaged groups. So that's yeah, that that's my sense. story. Yeah. <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about what IPA's mission is? Yeah. So um, so IPA stands for Innovations for Poverty Action. Um, our mission is to improve lives by discovering and advancing what works to reduce poverty. So maybe to you know. Uh, make this a little bit more concrete to to illustrate the mission. You can you know, imagine that you are like a, a decision maker uh, who needs to um, do something to improve learning levels in school, let's say. Um, or imagine that you're an individual philanthropist who you know, who wants to donate money to an organization that that wants to improve learning levels in school. So what should you do, right? Should you um, Add teachers? Should you invest in learning materials, textbooks? Uh, should you um, split your classes by like ability levels? Should you, um, you know, introduce computers in the classroom? <laughs> so should you do like merit-based scholarships? So there are many, you know, possible approaches to to the same problem, but it's not necessarily, you know. It's not necessarily obvious what the right answer is. So our mission really is to help decision makers, you know, figure out what the most cost-effective approaches are to address, you know, a number of poverty-related um, issues. You know, we, we talk a lot about vaccines these days, obviously, and everybody talks about the effectiveness rate of these of these vaccines, and we are all certainly hoping that these vaccines have been rigorously tested, right? Um, well, our, our goal is to, you know, introduce the same kind of standards for, for evidence and rigor in the field of international development, you know, to help answer these kind of questions uh, rigorously. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just speaking to cost effectiveness, has IPA been able to quantify in some way how much money is typically wasted on noble but ineffective efforts to fight poverty globally? Right, so we we haven't been able to, and uh, we haven't tried, frankly, <laughs> to uh, to to quantify that, you know, overall. Um, but I can, you know, give you some examples of, you know, things that that we evaluated that uh, that didn't necessarily work, and you know, even so, um, a large amount of resources were invested in in those. Um, so one example is around. Financial education. So every year, I think the estimate is that $600 million is spent on, on financial education. But we've, we've conducted actually a number of, um, and I, when I say we, it's not just IPE actually, but there has been a number of studies of, uh, you know, conventional approaches to financial education, which showed that 
these interventions were not particularly effective at imparting lasting knowledge about um, financial concepts and most importantly in changing people's financial behaviors. So the goal was to get people to save more or to, you know, adopt certain like practices in their business and things like that. Um, so, so that's one example of programs in which a lot of resources have been invested, which according to, uh, to, to evidence doesn't really lead to, um, to, to impact. So another example, and in, in, you know, I don't, I can't quantify it, but, uh, but I know a lot of resources were invested in that type of approaches. We conducted, um, a study in, in Bangladesh, uh, that was led by Professor Mushfiq Mubarak at, at Yale, um, and others. The study, you know, evaluated different approaches to um to improve sanitation um and specifically to encourage people to to use safe platforms and so what they did is that they you know, they compared an intervention on the demand side and you know, an intervention on the uh, price side um so as part of this study they evaluated something called um the community led sanitation approach uh, which is essentially a behavioral change approach for sanitation so you know this is really about awareness building and, and things like that and uh, and that's you know an approach that's been really promoted quite heavily and that's been implemented across 60 countries I don't know how much has been invested in it, but probably a lot of resources because that's a lot of countries. Um, and so what, what the research has found is that this approach, actually this awareness building approach, this community mobilization approach on its own was not really effective at changing people's behavior, that it was only affecting, effective when it was combined with a subsidy for buying latrines, safe latrines. Uh, so that's another example of, you know, Something that that didn't work, in which um, uh, large amount of resources were were invested. Yeah, and I know that IPA takes an interesting approach where works on three different levels: on the study and research level, the sector level, and on a country level. So, can you discuss this approach a little bit more? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll take a little bit of a step back and sort of describe how how we work, um, and I'll uh, respond to your question as I do that. Um, so the way we work typically is that we uh, partner uh, with and support a network of academic researchers uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we partner with uh, implementing organizations, it could be non-profits or governments or even for-profit uh, institutions, you know, anyone who designs and implements programs. So together, you know, researchers and practitioners identify poverty-related issues then identify and often design innovative solutions to these issues and then, you know, evaluate the, the impact of these various solutions to understand which ones would be most um, cost-effective. And throughout this process, you know, we, we promote the, the use of evidence in decision-making, you know, and share the results of, of the research, uh, you know, with, with decision-makers. So the, you know, the main unit for our work for the evidence generation part of our work is really a study. <laughs> um, but we have organized our, you know, our operations um, uh, around our country offices um, because, you know, what 
what we've learned is that building a strong presence in, in a country allows us to build a really like strong research infrastructure in this country, you know, with very experienced research staff over time. And it also allows us to, uh, to build long-term relationships with, with decision makers, which is really critical to, uh, to the other pillars of our work, um, which are, you know, around sharing evidence with the right people at the right time and equipping decision makers to use that evidence. So when we talk about this part of our work, you know, the, the sharing evidence and equipping decision makers to use that evidence, then it's not necessarily done at the study level you know, because often what decision makers benefit from, it's not just the results of one study, it's the results of you know, a body of evidence, right? Um, or when we support, you know, decision makers in incorporating evidence in their work, again, it's not just going to come from one study, but from, you know, several studies where you think about how to adapt the results to, to their context, right? So that, that's where the country level becomes really important for this, for the policy engagement piece of our work and really for building, you know, the research infrastructure that allows us to conduct studies. And then, um, at the global level, we also have uh, sectors. Uh, so we have we have built uh, sector expertise in certain sectors, you know, for which we have typically a, a sector director, you know, leading the work. And what it allows us to do is to have a little bit more of a, you know, coordinated uh, research agenda where we identify research gaps. Uh, and then, you know, proactively um, uh, work with researchers and practitioners to develop studies to, uh, to fill this gap. In some cases, we have competitive research funds. So this is a part of money, basically, that, that allows us to incentivize research teams to, you know, develop studies that, that respond to this research agenda. So, so that's when, you know, the, the sort of sector level uh, comes in to really, you know, uh, build expertise at at this level and and also you know, push forward research agendas around certain topics. And I know you already kind of touched upon it, but can you talk a little bit more specifically about the data collection process and randomized control trials? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, you know, most of most of our evidence generation work aims to understand, you know, what which solutions to Various poverty-related issues will be most cost-effective, and so, uh, so like I mentioned, you know, in, what that means is that we partner with researchers and practitioners to to identify poverty-related issues, identify and design potential solutions to these issues, and then evaluate the impact of these various solutions to understand which one will be most cost-effective. And to do that, we mostly use randomized control trials. So. The goal of a randomized control trial is to you know, measure the impact of a specific intervention, you know, in, isola- in isolation from any other factors. So, um, and the, the way to do this is by, you know, comparing a group of people that receives this intervention to another group of people that, you know, is entirely similar to the first group of people, except that they have not received intervention. The only way to do that, since we can't you know, clone people, the only way to do that is to randomly assign you know, which individuals or which households or which villages 
um, receive the the intervention. And if you use a sample that's large enough, you know, in average, the two groups will be will be similar. So you know that when you measure outcomes of interest a couple of years later, you know that the only difference between these two groups is that in average, right, that one of them got the program and the other uh, did not. Um, that basically is the same methodology that's that's been used, you know, for a long time now in uh, in in the pharmaceutical industry world. <laughs> uh, you know, this is how the the efficacy of medicines and vaccines is is assessed. So this is really applying the same method uh, to to the social science field. Yeah, and I know IPA has a lot of different initiatives and programs. And one that I was really interested in is the Human Trafficking Research Initiative. So, and I know that you partner with the program to end modern slavery. Can you talk a little bit more about what this effort is? Yeah. So um, this is this is a fairly new uh, program. It just started at the end of last year, and the the way that it's being uh, the, the the goal of this program is really to grow the body of um, rigorous evidence about you know what works and what doesn't work to um, to, to reduce uh, human trafficking and modern slavery, um, and that's very much needed because there has been um, while there has been a lot of you know research to document the the, the very nuanced and complex problem. Um, there hasn't been a lot of evidence about the type of interventions that may or may not work um, in field. And there are good reasons why. It's because, you know, by design, it's very complex to do um, research in this space, uh, especially when it involves, you know, collecting primary data. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Not the offenders, not the victims, you know, uh, want to, to identify themselves uh, or, you know, um, uh, may not want to tell the truth, so that there are, there are very obvious measurement challenges in this in this field. So this is you know, certainly one of the reasons why there hasn't been more rigorous evidence. So so the goal is to you know fill fill this gap. Um, so the way that it's being set up is um, in the way that I described earlier. There is a research fund. We have a research fund that we will use to uh, incentivize research teams to design studies to you know pilot and test uh, different types of of programs so it's a, it's a competitive fund and we we've, we've already have oh i think it's it's currently happening we have one round uh, currently happening so uh so i can't yet give you examples of studies because uh we haven't actually started studies but but we're very excited uh, about this this new program i think it's interesting i know that you do a lot of different things, so I was definitely interested in that. And another area that I know IPA has looked into is the effectiveness of giving cash directly to the poor. And for a long time, making direct cash payments was stigmatized in the nonprofit world. So I know that recent studies, however, have shown that it can actually be quite effective. So can you tell us a little bit about what IPA discovered when looking into this type of program? Yeah, so we have um, we have participated in a number of evaluations of you know cash transfer programs, uh, including you know uh, with Give Directly, which is uh, it's it's a nonprofit that basically makes uh, unconditional cash transfers to um, to households. So 
So I'll start by, you know, talking about um, the previous generation of cash transfer studies. So, so there has been a number of um, of studies, you know, not necessarily by by IPA, but there has been a number of randomized evaluations of conditional cash transfers, uh, which you know has been a very popular policy, especially in Latin America, and it you know started expanding to other sectors as well. Um, and you know what these studies have found is that um, in in general they tend to be you know, effective. So, um, uh, but of course you know um, there are costs um, associated with with having conditions, right? In some cases, you know it it makes sense because you know, a government may try to be achieving something very specific, so it makes sense to have a condition. In other cases, you know you Goals might be to help households more broadly. So, uh, so you know, whether you want a conditional versus non-conditional cash transfer, you know, depends on sort of a trade-off between you know how much are you trying to achieve something a specific outcome versus you know, you know, how much should we simplify the the process and reduce the cost by you know not having the cost of the condition. So. So anyway, all this to say that you know unconditional cash transfers have been around for some time, um, and that evaluations have shown that that they are quite effective. And you know, it started with um, the evaluation of the at the time called Progresa program in in Mexico. Uh, you know, that's one of the very well known randomized control trials that that probably had a big influence on the program. You know, um, uh, remaining um, in Surviving several governments in, in Mexico, and and then being you know expanded to other countries. Um, so the uh, the idea of unconditional cash transfers is is a little bit different, right? The, with a conditional cash transfer, you're trying to add, to influence a specific outcome, and you incentivize people to do that um, to do something. A, a conditional cash transfer is you know really meant to to help households, you know, invest in what they determine they need to invest in, right? And, you know, the idea is you know, households might might know best what, you know, they need the money for and um, um, and that reduces, like, transaction cost of actually implementing a program. Right? So this idea is very attractive, right? Because it's, it's simple, you know, it's, Cheaper in terms of you know programmatic transaction costs. On the other hand, you know detractors would say, well, you know people may not know what to do with the money, and worse, they might misuse the money. They might you know drink it away. <laughs> so that was you know kind of the debate. Um, so what the studies showed, for example, you know the study that we did with Give Directly, but there has been since then a number of you know other studies looking at different ways of doing cash transfers, but what the studies show is that, no, people don't, you know, overall, people don't misuse the money. People don't bring the money away. They put it to good use. You know, for example, like strengthening their roof or, or investing in an asset. Um, and, you know, overall, um, it has a positive effects on, on people's lives. Um, it increases their, you know, their assets and consumption and um, improves their, their outlook on, on life. And are there any trials that IPA is currently conducting that you're particularly excited about in terms of their potential to reduce poverty? 
yeah, I guess there are many. Um, yeah. Well, you know, right now we are working with um, a couple of governments, you know, on their on their cash transfer program, um, precisely. So, um, you know, that that's one of the things I'm I'm excited about because in in COVID times this is this is a really important intervention. So, uh, we're currently working with the uh, with the Colombian government to uh, evaluate you know, two different types of of cash transfers. Um, so here, this is you know not so much evaluating the effect of a cash transfer because you know we we know that you know those generally work, but it's also looking at you know, the best ways to to do it. And we have um, we have done a number of studies um, uh, called the graduation studies that. Uh, that evaluated an, an approach called the graduation approach, and this is about graduating ultra poor households out of poverty. So this approach involves like providing households with a productive asset, plus you know, handholding and uh, training and um, access to you know small like health savings, and so it's, it's sort of a bundled approach, but all centered around like a productive asset and handholding. You know, training on how to use this asset and support to use this asset. Um, and this is a study that's been run in, uh, we've, we've run the study in, in seven different countries with, you know, seven different partners. Um, and overall, these studies have shown that, that this approach is really effective at, you know, bringing people out of, out of poverty, that it increased their, you know, consumptions, you know, in a durable way. Uh, and you know, had a number of other positive outcomes. So, you know, that's, that's one of the interventions maybe with the largest impact that, that we've evaluated. Um, now there are a number of questions around how to get it scaled to, to governments, right? It's, it's not cheap. Um, so even though, you know, over a lifetime, the cost benefits are pretty favorable, it's, it's still pretty expensive. So, um, because it involves, you know, transferring assets plus, you know, a pretty, a pretty intensive like household visit model and things like that. So, so one of the questions that, that we're trying to answer is is how you know this program can be scaled in a more you know, cost-effective manner. So, so we're running various, you know, variations of this of this. Pro- we're evaluating a number of variations of this approach. Uh, to to understand you know how the approach can be can be modified you know among other things to reduce the, the cost with the same kind of impact. Yeah, and of course I want to ask how can people get involved in the work that IPA is doing? Yeah, so um, well it it depends on <laughs> in any way yeah. who the people are, um, but we you know regularly recruit people. Um, you know, country offices or, or here at the global level. So, um, you know, for people interested in vigorous um, uh, research in international development or for people interested in, you know, um, uh, disseminating research or, or engaging with, with policymakers, um, you know, this is, this is a great place to work. <laughs> you know, for for people working with implementing organizations, um, you know, non-profits or governments, we're always keen to, to meet new partners. 
uh, to form new partnerships. Uh, so, you know, you should reach out if you're interested in, in working with us. And, you know, we also need resources. <laughs> uh, so for people interested in, in philanthropy, they're welcome to donate to IPA. <laughs> Thank you again for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Great. You're welcome.